want to welcome those of you who are listening to us by our podcast or by our app. We are uh, continuing in a series in the first half of the Gospel of Mark, which covers the first three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, Mark, that makes sense, right? Mark writes with a sense of urgency about who Jesus is, and he forces you to confront the question personally for you, who is Jesus? Not on the basis of your opinion, not on the basis of my opinion, not on the basis of social media's opinion, but on the basis of first-hand accounts of the life of Jesus, what he actually said about himself and what he actually did. Now, why does he write with this sense of urgency? Here's the reason, and I want you to hear me now on this, okay? Hear me now. Like, if you're dozing off already, if you're, if you're thinking about something else, I want you to hear me, about this, hear me on this. The most important decision that you will ever make in your life is who your Lord will be. Okay? The most important decision that you will ever make in your life is who your Lord will be. Who your Lord is will affect your physical, excuse me, will affect your spiritual health. It will affect your psychological health. It will affect your relational health. It will affect your emotional health. Do you guys realize that? We have a, you know, we sing a song. I love the song. It's a, it's a song by Charlie Hall. It's called Mystery. And, and like the first line of it is, Sweet Jesus Christ, my sanity. Sweet Jesus Christ, my clarity. I don't know if you recognize this. I don't know if you realize this. But who your Lord is will affect your emotional health. It will warp and distort your psychological health, your emotions. Or if your Lord is the right Lord, He will give you clarity. He will give you purity. He will give you health emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, and relationally. Who your Lord is will affect whether you're on the right side of history or the wrong side of history. Who your Lord is will affect whether you're on the right side of the future or on the wrong side of the future. In short, who your Lord is is the most important thing about you. So choose well. That's what Mark is telling us here. It's why he writes with such urgency. All right? Turn in your Bibles this morning, if you will, to Mark chapter 3, the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 3. We're going to see in Mark chapter 3 again today with great clarity uh, how Mark forces us to confront the issue of who Jesus is. Because even the people who were closest to Jesus were forced to wrestle with this issue of who Jesus is. Now, just a quick reminder of the context of Mark chapter 3 here. Jesus' popularity has been soaring because he's performed several miracles uh, in the presence of, the crowd, of, of crowds of people. He's cast out demons. He has healed paralysis. He has uh, healed other sicknesses. Hashtag Jesus is trending on Twitter worldwide. But at the same time that Jesus' popularity is soaring, the religious leaders in Israel are growing more and more hateful and more and more resentful of Jesus. They're even plotting to kill him. And here's, let me, let me just give you an outline of where the passage is going to take us this morning because I want you to be able to understand where we're at and follow along. First, the passage is going to show us three wrong theories about Jesus. Three wrong theories about Jesus, okay? Second, it's going to tell us Jesus' own words about himself 
And then third, it's going to challenge us with the implication of Jesus' identity for your life. Okay, so here we are. We're going to start with three wrong theories about Jesus. Then we're going to see Jesus' own words about himself. And then we're going to see the implication of Jesus' words about himself, his identity uh, for your life. Okay, let's start with three wrong theories about Jesus. Jesus is very controversial, all right? And watch this because the controversy is going to strike very close to home. Let's start reading at chapter 3, verse 20. Chapter 3, uh, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples, I mean, guess the, the crowd was so large, they went in to eat, the crowd came along, it was so large that they were not even able to eat. Verse 21, when his family heard about this, <laughs> they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. Okay, so write this down. Theory number one, wrong theory number one about Jesus is that Jesus is crazy. All right? Don't you love this? Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. Now, now, why did they think that? Why did they think he was crazy? Okay, consider this. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus, just in those two chapters, Jesus has made some very startling claims. Number one, he's claimed to be the Son of Man. That's a very famous reference that everyone in Israel uh, would have known. It comes from the Old Testament prophet Daniel. It's in Daniel chapter 7. You can check it out later for yourself. The Son of Man is this divine figure who comes to judge and cleanse the earth at the end of time. Okay? Second, Jesus is claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, meaning that he instituted the Sabbath. He created the Sabbath. All right? He's also said that he has the power to forgive sins. And then he's also said that every sin any human being commits is against him personally. Okay, so take all of that together, and his family gets the point. He thinks he's the Messiah, and they think he's crazy. Let me ask you, what if your brother or sister came along and decided that they were the Messiah? What would you think about them? The phrase in verse 21 that says uh, that they went to take, take charge of him, it's actually a little stronger than that in the Greek text. It means that they went to seize him. And take him away. Uh, today, this would mean that uh, men in white uniforms are coming to take you away. That's what, that's what that would mean, all right? In other words, they think he's nuts. They think that the lights are on, but nobody's home. That the cheese has slipped off his crackers. That he's a few sandwiches short of a picnic. However you want to say it, but they think he's cray-cray. That's what they think about Jesus. He's got a Messiah complex. I don't, you guys, any of you guys remember a book? I think it was written back in the 70s. It was a guy by the name of, uh, a psychologist by the name of Milton Rokich, and he wrote a book called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Anybody remember this book? Anybody read it? Okay. So um, Rokich was a psychologist, and he worked in a mental institution in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Three of his patients had a Messiah complex, okay? So that's why it's called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. These three guys' names were actually, they weren't, their names weren't Jesus uh, or Jesus or anything like that. Their three names, uh, their names were Leon, Joseph, and Clyde, okay? All three of these guys thought they were the Messiah. And so he'd been working with these guys individually for like three years and nothing was working. And so he decided that he was going to take a new approach. And so what he did was he put them in a group together, thinking it would be interesting to see how these guys do when they're rubbing up against each other. And so for two years, these three delusional messiahs were assigned to adjacent beds. They ate every meal together. They worked together at the same job. They met daily for group discussions. And Rokich records that some fascinating conversations happened during that period of time. For instance, there was one conversation he records where Clyde once insisted, he said, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I was sent here to save the earth. 
And Rokich asked him, well, well, how do you know that? And so Clyde says, God told me, to which Leon countered, I never told you any such thing. Okay, this is, <laughs> this is where Jesus' family, like, this is what they think about him. They think he's crazy. And by the way, can I just say this? This is one of the many reasons that I don't think that the Bible is a myth that someone created in order to cause people to want to follow the Messiah. Because look, here's the thing. If you were trying to create a myth to pull the wool over people's eyes about someone's Messiahship, you wouldn't diminish his credibility instantly by saying that his own family thought he was crazy. You just wouldn't do that if you're, if you're creating a, a, a myth about something, okay? So here's wrong theory number one. People think, some people, his family, think he's crazy. The teachers of the law, though, have a different theory. And I want you to watch this, verse 22. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, they said, and they were saying this in response, right, to uh, the healings, uh, excuse me, the casting out of demons that Jesus had been doing. They said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. That's a word for Satan. He is possessed by Satan, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Okay, so write this down. Theory number two. Theory number one was he's crazy. Theory number two is that Jesus is evil. In other words, what they're saying is that he's satanic. Uh, He's in league with the devil. Uh, He's evil. This is the assessment of Jesus by the most respected religious men in Israel. And again, let me just say, if the book of Mark, if the Gospels were a myth, this is a terrible way to persuade people to follow Jesus as the Messiah. His family thinks he's nuts, and the most respected people in the nation think he's demon-possessed, that he's a liar, that he's not from God like he says he is, that he's from Satan. Okay? Terrible way to pull the wool over people's eyes. All right. Now, Jesus responds. He's going to respond to the accusation of he's crazy later on, but he's, he's going to respond to this accusation that he's satanic uh, directly in verse 23. Watch this. So Jesus called them. He's talking about the... Uh, teachers of the law, and he spoke to them in parables. Parables were like spiritual uh, metaphors, essentially. Okay? And they're stories. They're, they're, they're metaphorical. Okay? And he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. So here's the first parable. Uh, the first spiritual metaphor, Jesus is just doing this. He's likening the world to a kingdom that is dominated by an evil prince, Satan, or uh, to whom he's going to refer in verse 27. He's going to call him a, a strong man. He, he says, look, if I'm demonic and I'm casting out demons, that doesn't make any sense at all. An evil prince would never stay the prince if he attacked his own army. That's illogical, okay? So that doesn't make any sense. So theory number one, Jesus is crazy. Wrong theory number two is that Jesus is evil. Now here's the third theory, and I want you to write this one down. And this isn't as obvious in the text, but I'll explain it in just a moment. Here's theory number three. Wrong theory number three about Jesus is that Jesus is just a teacher of love and peace. Jesus is just another teacher of love and peace. Now, okay, let me explain this. Let me show you this, okay? 
Watch this now. Remember that Jesus has just spoken a spiritual metaphor about a kingdom dominated by an evil prince. Now he's going to continue with the same theme in verse 27, but this time he's going to focus on the evil prince's castle. Verse 27. He says, In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house. Okay, that word strong man, uh, a better translation would probably be a powerful man. It's a reference to Satan, okay? So no one can enter a powerful man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the powerful man. Then he can rob, the word also could be plunder, uh, his house. Okay? So here, here we go. We, this strong man, this powerful man, has a castle, and in it there are all sorts of possessions. In other words, Satan has a, a, a place, and in, 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 in this kingdom and in this castle of his, he's got all sorts of these valuable possessions. Now, because this is a parable, because it's a spiritual metaphor, we are to understand that the possessions are us. We're the valuable possessions that Satan has in this castle because the world is in bondage to Satan. Okay? That's what we're to understand. Now, here's what I want you to get. Okay? This, we said the wrong theory number three uh, is that uh, Jesus is just a teacher of love and peace. He's just another teacher of love and peace. When Jesus says this, when he uses this parable, this spiritual metaphor, He's striking a death blow here to those who would relegate Jesus to simply a good teacher of love and peace, like every other religious leader in the world. Have you heard that? Have you heard that theory about Jesus? A lot of people have this theory that he's just like all of the others. He's like Buddha and he's like, uh, you know, he's like every other religious leader in the world. He's just, you know, he's just a good teacher. That's, 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 that's what he is. Great, but that's all he is. But Jesus is striking a death blow. Now, what do I mean? Why? How is he striking a death blow? Well, this is where we're going to move now in the sermon to the second point that I want to make today, and that has to do with Jesus' own words about himself. Okay? So we've, we've seen three wrong theories about who Jesus is. Now we're going to see Jesus' words about himself. And you're going to find that this is, these are a death blow to the idea that he's just another... Uh, just teacher of love and peace. Okay. In verse 27, notice in verse 27, he says, he says someone's going to enter the evil prince's castle and he's going to carry off his possessions by binding the evil prince. To do that, someone has to be stronger. Someone has to be more powerful. Someone has to be greater than the evil prince. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the one who's going to tie up the strong man and carry off his possessions. I'm the one. In other words, what Jesus is alluding to here is that humanity needs rescue. And yes, certainly, Jesus was a teacher of love and peace. But not just that. In fact, not primarily that. Not first that. What he's saying here is that I'm going to have to come and do something for you before I can ever do anything in you. Maybe another way to say this. Write this down. Here's what Jesus is saying. Is that, this is Jesus' own words about himself. Here's what he's saying. Before I can teach you, I have to rescue you. 
Before I can teach you, I have to rescue you. And that makes perfect sense. Some of you, some of you who are familiar with the Old Testament remember that Israel was in bondage. They were in slavery in Egypt. Um, what happened first? They were in slavery in Egypt, and then at some point, uh, the, there is the teaching to Israel of the law. What happens first? Do, are they rescued first, or does he teach them the law first? Say it out loud. They're rescued first. He rescues them from slavery in Egypt. See, these are not rhetorical questions. Those are like real questions. I want your answers. Okay, so he rescues them from slavery in Egypt first. And then he gives them the law. This is what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, before I can teach you, I have to rescue you. And see, this separates Jesus from every other religious leader in the world. Jesus didn't just claim to be a teacher or a prophet or pointing people to a way or to the way. It was some other way. He claimed to be the rescuer, the redeemer of the world. He's the one whom the psalmist and the prophets predicted. He's the divine warrior. He's the king of the world. He's the redeemer. He's the one who's going to crush Satan's head. He's the one who's going to bind the strong man. He's the one who's going to free those who believe from Satan's tyranny. And of course, this is what he's referring to in verse 28. Look at verse 28. He says, I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. See, what Jesus would do on the cross would plunder the evil prince's castle. Something had to be done about sin. Sin is what kept humanity in the evil prince's possession. And so the only one who could, the only one who could do anything about sin was the ultimate strong man who would die for the sake of humanity. And then three days later, he would conquer death through resurrection and so put the evil prince uh, in his place. You see, Jesus' own words about himself are that he is the rescuer. He is the redeemer of humanity. First and foremost, that's what he is. Yes, he's a teacher. Yes, he's a teacher of love and peace. Absolutely. But he's more than that. He is the redeemer. No other world religious leader has ever made that claim. And I want you to think about the world that we live in. Think about death. Think about disease. Think about injustice. Think about, think about poverty. Think about racism. That still exists. Think about hunger. Think, about, think, of the, think of the brokenness of the world that we live in. Do you really think that a teacher is going to overcome all that? Do you think that the solution to all of that is just education? Look, I'm all for teachers. I, look, I consider myself kind of a teacher. My father was a teacher. I value teachers. But do you really think a teacher is going to overcome all of that? No, Jesus is saying that he's more than a teacher. He is the redeemer of the world. Before I can teach you, I have to rescue you. Those are his words about himself, okay? Now, last thing, and this is so important, and I'm going to say, if you find yourself, like if you find yourself tuning out right now, uh, gather yourself like if you're thinking right now about what you're going to eat or, you know, like what you're going to do this afternoon or, you know, you're going to play some golf or whatever you're going to do this afternoon, 
Would you just listen right now? Because this, this is the climax of the whole passage that you cannot miss. Um, I would venture to say to you that this may be the most important thing that you're ever going to hear in your life. Now, that's a pretty bold claim. So I would make sure that I listen and pay attention here. Here it is. What we're going to talk about now is the implication of Jesus' identity for your life. The implication of what Jesus says about himself as the redeemer of the world. Here's the implication for your life today. Watch this now because there's a warning that Jesus gives and there's a promise that Jesus gives. We're going to start with the warning First, Jesus says in verse 29, he says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, he just said that all sins and blasphemies of men were going to be forgiven. But now he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, the teachers of the law were saying, he has an evil spirit. Now, what is Jesus saying? Because a lot of people get very worked up about this. There's a whole, like, there's, like, like people have a name for this. They call it the unpardonable sin. Be careful that you don't commit the unpardonable sin. What is the unpardonable sin? Like, like there is some unpardonable sin, some specific thing that uh, if you do this, you can't be forgiven. Here's what he's doing. Here's what he's saying. He just said in verse 28, all sins can be forgiven. Now he says blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can't be forgiven. Why? Because here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I can forgive every sin in the world. But I can't forgive your sin if you refuse to believe what the Holy Spirit is showing you. Through all of these miracles that I'm doing, through all the things that I'm saying, if you don't believe this, that I am the redeemer of mankind, that I'm the Lord of the universe, if you don't believe in me, my death on the cross will effectively be meaningless to you. You will remain in your sins for all of eternity. Now that's, that's what he's saying here. Like if you, if you see all of this and you don't believe... I can't help you. You will remain in your sins for all of eternity. Now, that's the warning. If you fail to believe in Jesus, there is no hope for you. You are under the reign and the rule of an evil being who seeks your destruction. And he seeks the destruction of everyone that you love. He seeks your destruction and he seeks their destruction spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, psychologically, physically, relationally, and eternally. Now look, I realize, I realize how this comes across in our culture. That is very offensive. And like in the, in the culture that we live in, saying something like that, like if you said something like that, um, like anywhere that social media could get a hold of that, uh, they would just like come down all over you. They'd come down all over Jesus for this. I mean, you know, you'd see hashtag hateful, hashtag intolerant, you know, about what Jesus said. But as we've said throughout this series, the thing about Jesus is that he tells you the truth. And he tells you the truth that you don't want to hear whether you like it or not. He is willing to lovingly offend you and not be liked by you for your sake. Now, that's love. 
Everybody wants to be liked. Everybody wants to be liked. But would you be willing, out of love for someone else, to tell them the truth, even if it means they might not like you, and do it for their sake, because it's the very best thing for them? That's what Jesus is willing to do for you and me. There's the warning. There's the warning. Take heed. But there's a promise here, too. There's a promise. Look at verse 31. And remember, Jesus' family, they called him crazy. Okay? They're like ready to take him away. Verse 21, excuse me, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in uh, to call him, right? Because it's, so it's so crowded they can't get in there. And they're so like, they tell somebody, they probably, they probably grab somebody they know and they're like, hey, could you, could you go get him and bring him out? Because we, we need to take him away. Don't tell everybody. Just go tell him, mom, brothers, sisters, dad, we're outside. We need to talk to him for just a minute. Would you mind to go in and tell him that? Okay. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, uh, your, mo your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus says this. Here's his response. Always love Jesus' questions. When you see Jesus ask a question, pay very close attention. He says, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Verse 34. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, let me tell you something. This is a big deal. You probably doesn't hit you the way that it would have hit a first century audience because theirs was a, theirs was a very patriarchal culture in which family, like, it meant everything, it's where you got your identity, okay? Here in America, we don't so much get our identity from our family. We usually get our identity from our work. In their culture, it was from your family. Everything about you was from your family, okay? So it was strongly family-oriented. And for Jesus to say this, who are my mother and my brothers? Was, it's, it's those who do God's will. Okay, that was highly significant. Now, what was he saying? He was saying, even if your family rejects you, like my family is rejecting me right now, believing that I'm crazy. Even if your family rejects you, even if, you, if your family thinks you're crazy, you can be a part of my new family by believing in me. And, and, and I can give you an unconditional love so powerful that it will make your family's love seem minuscule in comparison. That's, that's, that's what he's saying. Now, I want you, it's, this is, it's, sometimes it's hard to keep all the layers. When you read the New Testament, it's hard to keep the layers of things in, order, or, or, uh, in mind because, like, on the one hand, we're reading something uh, that happened in a, to, a period of, uh, to a group of people in a period of time, okay? So that's, like, one layer. It's like we're reading about something that happened to people. But then we forget that this was written to a group of people. And the people to whom it was written were people who their own families had rejected them for their belief in Jesus as the Messiah. Remember, this is written after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. And they, these people have believed in Jesus and, and they don't, like their families have rejected them. And here, can you imagine what this would have meant to them to hear Jesus say, to hear that Jesus had said, look, if your family has rejected you, I'll never reject you. You're part of my family. 
My family thought I was crazy too. And if your family thinks you're crazy, join with me. Be part of my new family. That would have meant a tremendous amount to them. And maybe you're here today and your family rejected you because of your belief in Christ. Look at what Jesus says. You can be part of a new family. And the love that I can give you, it will surpass the love of your family. Okay? The implication for your life. So this is where we're at in the sermon now. We're, we're at this last point about what's the implication of all this for your life. The implication for your life is that you must make a decision about who Jesus is. Is he crazy? Is he evil? Is he just a good teacher? Or is he the Redeemer? Is he the Lord of the universe? And the stakes are high. You have to choose. And choose carefully. I'm going to close with this, and I want you to, I know I've told you three times to listen. Okay, this is real. So like if the first two, if I was just joking about listening there, now you got to listen, okay? Are you with me? Can you, you know, do you need to stretch or something? Do you need to stand up and stretch to just, because I want, want you to, I want you to focus in now. Really focus in. Like double down on focus. I'm with you. I'm trying to cool off too. I know exactly what you mean, dude. Okay, I want you to hear me on this. What, this is a great place to cool off too. By the way, if you're going to choose a place to cool off, church is a great place to cool off. Would you agree with me? Yeah, it's a great place to go to cool off. All right. What makes Jesus so remarkable, what makes his story so remarkable, is that you, you have to remember that his earliest followers were not Gentiles. His earliest followers were Jews. Now, if you remember, the view of God that the Jews had was absolutely unique in the world. Like, the Jews weren't from Eastern cultures that believed that God was kind of a divine power in all things. They weren't that. And they also weren't Western, and they, you know, and they didn't believe that, that the gods were somewhat, uh, kind of some somewhat flawed human beings who occasionally came down in human guises in order to have a good time or an adventure. They weren't Eastern, they weren't Western. The Jews believed that God had created the world out of nothing and that he wasn't just a life force in it. In fact, what they believed was that he was so infinitely, transcendently exalted and holy and perfect that the Jews didn't even mention his name. They wouldn't even say his name. They wouldn't even utter his name. They wouldn't even write his name out. The Jews would have been the last people on earth to believe that Jesus was deity, which is precisely why his family thinks he's crazy and the teachers of the law think he's satanic. You think modern people today have a hard time believing in Jesus' deity? Let me tell you, nothing like the Jews. And that leaves us with this incredible, historic question. What sort of life What kind of character, what kind of power must Jesus have displayed in order to convince thousands of Jews to believe something that was absolutely against everything that they'd ever been taught, absolutely against their worldview, absolutely against every fiber of their being, absolutely against 
everything that they had ever understood about themselves. What kind of life, what kind of power, what kind of character must Jesus have displayed in order to break through all of that? Well, think about it. Think about it. On the one hand, he claimed to be God. There's like this... (laughs) There is staggering egocentricity about that, isn't there? Like, if you claim to be God, you better be God. Okay? When you claim to be God, you're making a staggering claim. Uh, not the least of which is that you, you know, you're the object of life and, and you're also the center of life. That's profoundly, staggeringly egocentric. But then, here's the other thing. This is what I think broke through with them. There's, there's also the staggering non-egocentricity of Jesus' life. And by that, what I mean is his love for the poor. So on the one hand, he's got this, here's this guy, so egocentric. He claims to be God. He claims to be the most powerful being in the universe. And yet, on the other hand, there is his love for the poor, his love for the marginalized, his love for the suffering, his love for the least of humanity, the people whom egocentric people would least be seen with. And then there are the miracles. The healings that he did. Healing uh, a paralyzed man. Remember, folks, these were small communities. People saw and knew who this paralyzed man that Jesus had healed in uh, chapter 2. They knew this guy. They knew him for years before Jesus came on the scene. They knew he was paralyzed. They knew his name. Jesus wasn't pulling the wool over anyone's eyes. This wasn't a Benny Hinn or Robert Tilton kind of thing, for those of you who may remember those names. Jesus healed this guy. And what all of this did, the claims that he made, the people that he cared for, and and the miracles, what all of this did, well, it it was like the sun and the frost. The sun and the frost that finally, over time, broke his followers open to the truth. And these Jews worshiped. This is what Mark wants you to see. The single most important decision in your life is who your Lord will be. Mark unashamedly and unabashedly wants to convince you to believe in Jesus as the Lord of the universe and to worship him. Choose wisely, folks. Your life depends upon it. And let me tell you something. As soon as this service is over, you, you know what? You may be sitting here right now thinking, yeah, I believe that. I believe that. I, gotta, you know, I need to make a decision about this. As soon as this service is over, you're going to walk outside. And everything about life, when you walk outside, everything about life is going to say to you, it's going to say, eh, okay, I kind of believed it when I was in the service. But real life is about what's going on about here, where I'm going to go eat, what I'm going to do today. What I'm going to do tomorrow, my job, my career, what the newspaper's writing about, what social media is saying. That's what it's going to say. No, let me tell you something. doesn't matter what all of that is saying. The most important decision in your life is who your Lord will be. Choose wisely. Your life depends on it. Now, for those of you who have chosen to believe in Jesus, understand. I mean, some of you here have not made that decision. You, you haven't chosen to believe yet in the Lord Jesus. Uh, believe. Believe. For those of you who have chosen to believe in the Lord Jesus at some point in your life, and you understand that he's the Lord of the universe, well, I want you to understand something. That because he is the Lord of the universe, he has the right, and he does, make claims 
upon every aspect of your life. He's the Lord of the universe. He has the right to make claims. And he makes claims on your sex life. He makes claims on your marriage. He makes claims on your school. He makes claims on your dating relationships. He makes claims on the way you treat people of other races. He makes claims on your work. He makes claims on your money. He makes claims on your time. He makes claims on your business and the way that you conduct your business. He makes claims on all of that and he has the right to do that. Every part of your life. And I want you to know that recognizing the Lordship of Christ means taking more and more of your life out from under your reign and bringing more and more of your life under His reign and rule. The sun and the frost of Jesus' staggering egocentricity combined with His love for the least of humanity and His miracles should be breaking open more and more of your life to Him. And here's where I close. Just this, just this. If that's not happening, maybe you need to take a closer look at the one in whom you have believed. Would you bow with me for prayer? Lord, forgive us for the cavalier in nature with which we treat you and with which we treat your name. There are people in the room this morning that perhaps they came on the arm of a friend. Maybe they've been coming for a while. Maybe they've been, you know, they're kind of intrigued, interested. Maybe they think it's good for their family to be here. Lord, I pray that this morning that through your Holy Spirit that you would bring them to a place where they have to begin to confront the reality of who you are. And that they would hear the warning. That if they refuse to believe that they remain under the reign of the prince of evil. But I pray, Lord, too, that they would hear your promise. That by believing in your name, that all of their sins can be forgiven and, and that by believing in your name that they can be part of your family forever. Lord, I, I, it's not on the basis of cleaning, cleaning their lives up or anything like that. It's just on the basis of believing in your name. No amount of obedience could compensate for their sins. Only your obedience could compensate for my sins and for the sins of the people in this room. And so bring them to a place where they believe in you, Lord Jesus. And then, for those who have believed, people like me, Lord, would you just continue to bring more and more through the Holy Spirit, through my cooperation with the Holy Spirit, would you bring more and more of my life under your rule and reign, out from underneath mine, and underneath your rule and reign, because you are good, and you are the authority, And you have the right to make a claim over every aspect of my life. And I pray that for others here in this room too who have believed. Lord, would you cause us to take heed of what you have to say in this passage. This is an incredibly important passage. We thank you for speaking the truth to us even when we don't want to hear it. We thank you for your love for us. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.